When I was nine years old, I wanted to be like Kwai Chang Kane from the television series Kung Fu. Kane was stoic. He traveled the West in search of his half-brother and along the way, every week, helped people he met with his mix of quiet focus and badass martial arts mastery. He had amazing decorative scars on his forearms from his training. I was nine. So my takeaway was less the Taoist focus and more on the roundhouse kicks. Just north of the housing project we lived in was another housing project that had been mostly built and abandoned. So I would go there after school and pretend the bad guys in my head were the sections of drywall erected and kick and punch holes like I was him. I think I believed I could absorb the techniques of ancient Chinese secrets through watching him kick ass on TV. What the fuck did I know? I was nine. Secondary to my ascension as Shaolin monk in the Old West was my lack of genuine male role models. I had my mom, not male, my grandfather, World War II veteran, retired retired oil, oil rigger, darkly hysterical, definitely a man, and a stepfather who was vain and violent, mostly to my mom, but almost as frequently to me. I looked to the idiot box and movie theater for examples in the absence of real world guidance. No longer enthralled with the kung fu I never mastered, I still find inspiration from characters in popular culture who provide aspirational qualities. Number one, Ted Lasso. A fairly recent addition, Jason Sudeikis' over-the-top optimist soccer coach left me feeling hopeful. The character seems at first to be so cheerful and oblivious that he's easily written off as one note. As the first season unfolds, it becomes apparent that his optimism is rooted in a belief that people are basically good because to believe otherwise is to acquiesce to the void of despair. He is his own ray of sunshine and simply refuses to give in to cynicism. Number two, Samwise Gamgee. He's not the smartest hobbit in the Shire. He's not the most capable. He's not well-traveled in his daily wants or as simple as he is. But when the fucking rubber meets the road, he is the bravest of all of them. Samwise is that avatar of what genuine friendship looks like. He is solid like bedrock and understands in a fundamental way that what he lacks in grace or wit is balanced by his indefatigable tenacity to keep putting one hairy foot in front of the other, no matter the cost. Every character aside from Gandalf fiddles with giving up the quest, but not Sam. His belief in goodness, in ordinary pleasures, and the joys of living prevent him from even flirting with the idea of laying down. Number three, Spock. I always loved Star Trek, but I didn't really understand Spock until a few years ago. I've always been more of a Kirk, emotional, headstrong, impulsive, risky. Along that path, I came to realize that a lot of my greatest achievements came from that approach, but an equal and opposite amount of my worst mistakes could be attributed to it as well. Then came a self-imposed Trek marathon. I watched dozens of the original series, and for the first time, I understood why Spock was so important. Spock was thoughtful, stoic and logical. His approach was from rationality, although his characters from a race so emotionally charged that they built an entire culture around the compartmentalizations of emotions. I'll always be Kirk, but I want to be more like Spock. Bugs Bunny. It is the balls-out anarchy of bugs that inspires. Everything is funny. Nothing is sacred. Society is so filled with anxiety and outrage that actively refusing to take most of it seriously is almost a necessity for staying away from nibbling at your toes and mumbling conspiracy theories under your breath behind a Dunkin' dumpster. When in doubt, find the funny and laugh in the face of despair. 
Jules Winfield. No, I don't want to emulate this Sam Jackson, Quentin Tarantino creation's hitman skills. I find a certain solace in his ability to examine his life and truly see who he is and decide to make changes. And this is the quote from the movie. See, now I'm thinking maybe it means you're the evil man and I'm the righteous man. And Mr. Nine Millimeter here, he's the shepherd protecting my righteous ass in the valley of darkness. Or could mean you're the righteous man and I'm the shepherd and it's the world that's evil and selfish. And I'd like that. But that shit ain't the truth. The truth is you're the weak and I'm the tyranny of evil men. But I'm trying, Ringo. I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. Finally, Rocky Balboa. I love, I love, I love Rocky Balboa. I love the story, spanning over eight films. I love his propensity to take a punch and still get up no matter what. I love the fact that the goal so often in his arc is not about winning, but about going the distance. Rocky is self-deprecating, self-reflective, and can always find that extra gas in the tank when things get tough. Most important, Rocky is unashamed of his abiding love for the people in his life. I think stories are there to teach us as well as entertain. The lessons we choose to learn from our own experiences are invaluable. Fail as many times as life as you can and learn from the failures. The beauty of the billions of stories available to us in books, television, and film is that each of us can walk for a moment in the shoes of characters living lives we will never experience and gain some understanding from those journeys. It was a bizarre rule. At Circle High School, in the middle of what was the name of that town with the one grocery store and a gas station, Kansas, the edict hounded down from sometime in the early 70s was that the seniors were not allowed to have facial hair. For the most part, no one really cared much. It was 1984, and we were in fashion's clean-shaven place, having circumvented the hippie generation and come before the hipsters. Except for a small group of seniors, about five out of a graduating class of 86, the senior football players. They felt they should be able to grow out their testosterone-fueled beards and mustaches and were on a mission. In service to that mission, one of them recruited me to prosecute their case. Now, in one way, I was a natural ally to their cause. I was one of two top state debaters. Our freshman year, I'd lobbied to the school board to get my gym grade changed because you can't base a grade on a test that wasn't taught in the class, and I won. In another way, I was the least likely to have a spot of facial hair and didn't care much for the football team because most of them were assholes and bullies. I was, however, and am, a sucker for a challenge, so I bit. I wrote a brief about it. I researched the history of the rule. I sent around a petition, paper on clipboards because there was no email then, and given almost no one gave a shit, but everyone loved taking on the man, I got most of the student body to sign it. I was scheduled to present my case to the school board and showed up in my debate suit. I made it sound like the entire student body was in revolt over this obscure law and through nothing more than my moral clarity and heightened rhetoric, convinced a nonplussed group of small-town bureaucrats to capitulate. I felt at the time we'd won a massive victory against the powers that be. In reality, no one really cared that much except for the five senior football players, and then only two actually grew facial hair that didn't look like pasted on pubic hair. We were mice 
roaring, and we won. Soon after, seniors from all walks of tribal associations, cheerleaders, chess clubbers, math team members, came to me to wage battle on their behalf. I tried to say methodology and lost four times in a row. My senior advisor, Tom Restivo, pulled me aside one day and said, you know, most people in the school don't support your causes. You know that, right? It seems like you think that you're constantly on the side of right, but even if you are, without the backing of a larger group of students, you're never going to get algebra credit for the math team. According to the New York Times, and it was an article called The Democratic Electorate on Twitter is not the actual Democratic Electorate, they say that the outspoken group of Democratic-leaning voters on social media is outnumbered roughly two to one by the more moderate, more diverse, and less educated group of Democrats who typically don't post political content online. This latter group has the numbers to decide the Democratic presidential nomination in favor of a relatively moderate establishment favorite, as is, as you can see, with Joe Biden, is now the president, as it has often done in the past. Less engaged and less ideological voters tend to be cynical about politics. One might think cynicism would translate to support for outsider candidates, and it probably could against an establishment favorite with enough flaws. Instead, it has more often meant skepticism of ambitious and idealistic liberals and progressives who offer big promises with no record. It has meant an appreciation for well-known, battle-tested politicians who have been on their side or even delivered in the past. I think the election that we just went through pretty much supports everything that was written in that article. It seems like the far progressive left is the voice of the left, but as Tom Restivo might tell them, you know most Democrats don't support your causes. You know that, right? It seems like you think you're constantly on the side of right, but even if you are, without the backing of the majority of liberal thinkers, you're never going to get Medicare for all or that Green New Deal. Being right but losing is the biggest tragedy of all. And that's what, so what's a hardcore call-out culture, strident rage profiteer to do in the approach of the very realistic possibility that we're going to have not only two more years of the toxic turtle blocking progressive ideas in the Senate, but Donald Trump, right before he leaves, finally is kicked out of office, is, gonna, is just going to keep stacking things up against progressive ideals. Well, first... Recognize that louder isn't better. Persuasive is better. Coalitions of disparate ideologies is better. Recognize that those life-affirming retweets and hearts on your pages is clouding your self-perception and making you see yourself as somehow bigger than you are, like a chihuahua taking on a pack of Rottweilers. If you truly want change progressively, your incessant barking isn't going to win you that change. Second, Understand that while you are a true believer in identitarian tribalism and lots of free stuff for marginalized communities, most of the voting bloc you need doesn't. They care about equity. They care about the environment and women's rights. They care about the rights of gay individuals. They care about the legacy of slavery. But mostly, they care about income inequality. Focus your message on that, and you'll move the needle some to the left. Third, Realize that the only people who think you are bigger than 8% of the voting electorate is the media, not because they agree with you, but because you are good business for them. For the same ridiculous reason they gave equal airtime to anti-vaxxers and Trump apologists, they give you equal airtime to talk about abolishing the police and pronoun use. It's volatile and angry and makes for excellent TV. Being on the right side of history, but having no one in power to enact the change you seek, is an impotent feeling. 
If you want to hump the patriarchy, bone the white, white supremacists, and skull fuck the wealthy, you need the Viagra of a larger coalition of the left. Without it, all you get is blue balls and outrage. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly podcast featuring stories and thoughts from an arrogant, overly confident white guy. Lots of episodes were recorded while I was living in Chicago, and now I'm in Las Vegas. Check out donhall.vegas for updates, and subscribe at Apple Podcasts.